Um, I just wanted to start with a completely unrelated but interesting thought to me. Um, as most of you know, we have just completed a movie about Ananda called Finding Happiness. And last weekend up in Grass Valley, the local theater showed it. it had two showings on Sunday, one afternoon and one evening show. And it was some 350 seats and they were mostly full. And mostly full with people we didn't know, which was also nice. Of course, it was a movie made in the county about something in the county, so there was a certain enthusiasm, and people loved the pictures that they recognized, you know, helicopter shots of their own area. But after that, it was extremely well-received and very, very gratifying for all concerned. Um, they did exit polls with the video camera and just got lots of compliments. But uh, afterwards, also just out of interest, Shivani, at one of the showings, invited people who wanted you to stay for questions and answers about Ananda or its teachings. And about 50 people, she said, stayed. And Shivani, without thinking, Shivani, Jim, you don't know her, she's a woman shorter than I am, she's about this tall. And she invited three men to be up there with her, all of whom were more six foot two or bigger. So it was just ludicrous. She had Atman, who's about 6'5", and Ananta, who's about 6'5", and Indra, who's at least 6'3". So she didn't realize till afterwards just how the visual was ludicrous. But anyway, the four of them answered questions. <laughs> you can see the picture. It's very funny. But uh, she, one of the questions that was asked was interesting, and this is just what I wanted to share. Someone asked, not in an accusatory or, from a, 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 or, or not, not from a religiously narrow point of view, but they asked about Jesus being on the altar, which they'd seen in the movie, and, but they asked it in this way. They said, most religions teach that self-effort is required for enlightenment, but the fundamental principle of Christianity is that Jesus saves. And so they, they wanted to know how we reconciled uh, putting Jesus in the company when he was going to do all the work with all those who said we had to do spiritual practice. I thought it was a very interesting question, and I never actually heard it phrased just exactly like that. Of course, the answer is that that's not really what Jesus taught, and um, I'm sure that's what they answered. But because many of us have to answer questions about that, I thought that was an interesting way to put it. The theater owner himself um, was very enthusiastic, and he really liked our movie. And he's a good businessman. And how often does a good movie come, a well-made, entertaining movie that's about Nevada County, and he has his theater in Nevada County. So, in fact, now he's going to run it for a, a week. Apparently, he run, owns a number of theaters. This was at his art theater, and I guess he's putting it into one of his commercial theaters. I don't remember the names of all of them, but he thinks it has enough of a market to run for a week. So it's very exciting, of course. Okay. Um, now, did I have one other point to make? It might be now. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> have you not seen it? Oh, you haven't seen it? On the 15th of October, the DVDs will be shipped. So, one way or another. And we're going to do a showing in the Bay Area within the month, or maybe within eight weeks. So, we're going to rent... A, there's probably the whole the whole possibility of getting a distributor to take it for us and distribute it through theaters in America is looking so remote as to probably not going to happen. So we're probably going to have to do the do the distribution ourselves by arranging screenings ourselves. 
we may have some assistance doing that, but we'll probably do it ourselves. It's all, it's all coming out the way it's meant to be. Distribution of films is very complicated these days because except for blockbusters, you actually have to pay the distributors to take your movie. So this, I mean, somewhere in the middle of this, I found out from Shivani, oh, if some distributor takes us, that means we get to give him $100,000 to promote our movie. Or if we don't, there's no promotion, and therefore the whole thing fizzles. So I said, why are, you, why are we looking for this at all? It's just taken everybody time to figure this out. In India, they're just, they just like it more. They think it has more commercial possibilities. It's uh, No, I think we're not... Um, theater release is also problematic in India, but there's a lot of other ways to get it out. We're working on some threads, but overall the collective reception to it in India has been um, just more, more quickly and, and more completely enthusiastic than we found so far in America. But we haven't really started in America. We've only shown it trying to sell it, which is not really surprising that we've had trouble doing it. The thing in America is that people think it's self-serving. That's what they immediately think. In India, they recognize that we're representing, that of course we're representing our own ashram, but we're representing our own ashram because of the truth behind it. And that we're putting a great soul like Swami Kriyananda on the screen, and we're doing that out of the goodness of our hearts. In America, they think we're doing it to get members. <laughs> oh well, Om Swaha. I like America, now that I'm back. When I was in India, I didn't like it much, but I, I like it now. Shivani's, both of us were just, we were ready to leave it behind. Both of us having husbands somewhere else was a deterrent to just staying there, but nonetheless, the temptation existed. Okay, anything else? Do you have a question? Yes. I have a question before we get too far into Patanjali. Um, I was talking with a friend the other day, and um, the subject came up of Ananda, and uh, what I'm doing with my time. And we were talking about um, self-realization, and my friend said, oh, it's some kind of religion, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, well, hmm. Um, no, I said it's a uh, new expression of a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Well, he says, um, you, you have rituals, right? I said, yes. So, well, do you have music, singing, choirs? I said, yes. Um, do it you looks like a duck and sounds like a duck. Perhaps it's a duck. <laughs> do, 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 is there an organization? Uh, yes. It's, is there ministry? There's an organization. Is there yeah. And uh, do you believe in a higher power like God? Yes. Well, and it's a religion. So that kind of ended the conversation because I couldn't go anywhere else with it. I would like to have you clarify for us what <laughs> what to say in that um, situation. It's... It's decades before you can answer your friends, really. And then the best thing to do is just laugh it off and say, wow, I, I certainly have tied myself in a knot here, haven't I? I'll go ask someone. That's exactly the right answer. Um, you're really talking about the way words, English words are used. Um, the distinction that we're making between it being a spiritual path versus a religion you have to be pretty far into the center of it to really get the difference. Um, and on a, in a certain sense, it is a religion by common usage. Um, when they asked for religion on the blank space, Swami said, I think Master said this, but at least Swami said it, you write in self-realizationist, 
That's who we are, which is really a heck of a mouthful. Um, so, but we are self-realizationists. We're not, our religion is not Ananda. Our religion, so to speak, is self-realization. By its very nature, self-realization is not a religion in the sense. The big distinction here has to do with universality, and it gets really, really tricky. Because religions tend to, to see each other as separate that this is my religion and that's yours. And by definition, if this is my religion, I can't also be following yours. So people try to get around that by saying that they're following all of them. But then you come here and there's mm-hmm. a line of gurus and we pray to these masters and it begins to look a lot like a duck. Again. I thought perhaps the difference might be uh, dogma. Well, that, you could w- say that, but you're going to also get on pretty thin mm-hmm. eyes. Do you believe in reincarnation? Do you believe in karma? Do you believe in mm-hmm. the chakras? Sure, sure. And then, so then you... so. So that's what I'm saying. The, the, there's no bright lines in the sand. Um, when Swamiji was asked in the movie, as it happens, about whether Ananda is a religious community, he said, spiritual, yes, religious, no. But then he just explained, religion to me means outward formal, formal outward formalities. Spiritual means inner consciousness. So we do all the things that a church would do, but we don't consider it to be an end in itself. You are not saved by coming to Mass. You are not saved by having the right ritual, you know, the, the whatever it is before you die. And you're not saved by being a member. You're not saved by believing in Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters is what actual consciousness you have. And you can have a terrible consciousness within these four walls as easily as you can at the Catholic Church or the Jewish synagogue, and you can also have be very close to God in any building anywhere on the planet with any set of rituals. Um, all of those forms are created because they tend to facilitate a change in consciousness, but they only have value if they change your consciousness. And people do substitute dogmas for actually changing their consciousness, and that's when uh, it ceases to be spiritual and becomes merely a religion. That's a good answer. Okay. Thank you. I've worked on it for a long, long time. <laughs> well, it's a very important question, though. And when people say to me they're against organized religion, my question is, well, do you prefer disorganized religion? You know, you have to get people together to do things. But when it really becomes a detriment is when any institution, ritual, outward practice, priest makes itself an essential intermediary between you and God. And that's the point at which you have moved away from where you want to be. And that's, that's, that's the line. that is the bright line in the sand. If this external definition or reality is essential and you cannot have a relationship without that, okay. well, now, then you do have the guru come to think of it. However, so there is a little bit of Again, you get stuck with semantics. But the guru isn't essential. The, well, the guru is essential. Guru is the divine personified. He's your, he's your teacher. Takes you through it. But that's not institutional. That's not institutional. There you have it. That's completely outside any institutional. That's, that is between you and God. Your guru is between you and God. There you have it sent by God and only between you and God and your relationship with your guru is entirely private. It's not defined by any institution. 
It's not assigned to you and it's not defined for you. Yeah, these, these gurus do not belong to Ananda. These are, these are the gurus that we follow, but they're not, we do say, but you know, then you get into semantics. By the gurus of our path, we say that every week. Every time I say it, I think, hmm, I think we actually discussed it a little with Swami. He says, it is our path. What can we say? We don't own them, but it is our path. That's why we put the symbols of the other religions up in here. I mean, I, I was trying, this, this was an idea because it seemed like the quickest way to at least diminish um, the sense of sectarianism that the gurus on the altar create. Whether it's really effective or not, I don't know, but at least it, it kind of pushes things a little bit in that direction because it's still a contradiction when people look at it. Okay. Confusion in... Yeah. It's an opportunity for dialogue and it's... It, because, here's, here's Yogananda's words, self-realization is, has, has come to unite all religions. Self-realization is the unifying reality behind all religions. So Amiji put it in his book, The Hindu Way of Awakening, that every religion has two aspects, the way of worship, which is the external way, and the way of realization. The way of realization is the same for all religions because it's about inner consciousness. The way of worship is, is wildly contradictory. And as long as people are trying to make unity with the way of worship, he said it will always be a compromise. But if they try to make unity by the way of realization, then as he put it, true men of God will always recognize one another. Um, when Master went to a Catholic monastery somewhere to see a, a bishop or an abbot there that he heard, knew was a saint, the other monks became a little agitated at the presence of the heathen among them, but the abbot came out and just immediately knew who he was and took him in right away because realization is the unifying reality. Catholic, Hindu, they both knew it made no difference at all. Trace Neumann was was in in Connor's right when when Master went to see her. She was a saint. The bishop has for, the bishop has forbidden me to receive any visitors, but I will receive the man of God from India. We didn't even know who he was, but she knew who he was. So, okay. If all disciples truly understood the teachings of their masters, there would be no conflict among them. <laughs> that was also, I think that was master's own phrase from autobiography. Or Sri Yukteswar's, I think. Okay. Shall we go on with Patanjali? Okay. We are at 134. The vrittis, attachments and desires, can also be neutralized by calming and retaining outward the exhalation of the breath. Attachments and desires, the energy in the chakras, which is created by our attachments and desires, can be neutralized, neutralizing the vrittis, calming them down. Um, And he talks about the exhalation of the breath. Swamiji then goes on to talk about the fact that whereas pranayama has come to be thought of as breathing exercises, prana is actually the inner energy. And controlling the inner energy is what um, the, the instruction is really for. 
But the confusion in people's minds, he said, even here he thinks when Patanjali made the statement because otherwise all of us are going to go, and just hope that realization will come (laughs) sooner or later, you know, just by holding the breath out. So it, it just, it can't possibly mean that. But what he's talking about is that, um, let me just find this exactly. Um, he's talking about the irda and the pingala, the, the narrow, he, he, he touches on this without going into great detail, but he talks about the fact that the breath is what we see, but what, what is actually happening is that the energy is going up up one side and down the other of the spine, the irda and the pingala, the two nerves, the subtle nerve channels. And when that up and down flow stops is when the vrittis are calmed. But the breath is just a symptom of what's happening on a much deeper level. It was just the simplest way that he could say it. And of course, Swamiji describes how the two, when the, when the two energies finally come into balance, the kundalini rises up the the middle channel, which is the shashumna, and then there is no inhalation or exhalation. Breathlessness ensues. I'm out of my element when I really talk about these things, so I can't go into this in the kind of depth that Swami can, but I can at least understand what he's talking about and not, um, not cause us to be too confused here. What's fascinating here is how... Um, just a second... Oh, yes. You know, the practice of Kriya, which we all do, which is so... uh, What we have to understand from where we're all living, where our... For most of us, not for everyone, breathlessness is not, generally speaking, something that we can access so easily. Patanjali is describing something that we would recognize if it happens. He's also describing an esoteric principle so that those who have ears to hear can have confirmation of what it is that they're already experiencing. Because he's giving guidelines here that take us all the way up you know, to God-realization. When Swamiji was writing in the Gita commentary about how you can work out karma as a jivan mukta, living entirely in isolation by visualizing a whole lifetime of karma even spoke of working it out through more than one body at a time. And he, went in, he goes into some detail. And when he was writing the book, at that, when he was writing those particular chapters, I happened to be where he was, and he would, would give us to read the pages as he wrote them. And reading through all of that, first of all, I was just so impressed by how, how clearly Swamiji was able to talk about it. And I jokingly said, sometimes my jokes are not appropriate, um, you know, this isn't, this chapter doesn't apply to everyone. I mean, because what, by the time you're living out by yourself in the cave, but then Swami, just with, without missing a beat, he just looked at me and said, but it will apply to some, and for them it will be very useful. You know, there's just this perspective on what he's doing. I was reminded in that of what I've told you all before when I met that sadhu who lived up in the little cottage above Badrinath in India. So Badrinath's about 12,000 feet, so he was about 13,000 feet up there maybe. And the Himalayas, the Himalayas there go, they, they rise really suddenly. They're sort of like teeth 
They, they come out of the ground really steep and sharp. So they're very dramatic. And he had a little couture that was maybe half the size of the altar area. Did you, did you go there? I always look at you and ask you, and you always tell me, no, you weren't there. <laughs> I've asked you that maybe a dozen times. Because I always think of you there. Because, yes, I know. Because I can feel how deeply you would have liked to have been there. Kutir was half the size of this altar area, maybe actually less than that. You know, like maybe a third the size of it. And it just sat there on this little piece of land. And when you looked out the, the window, all you saw was the mountains rising. It was, yeah, it was like I was, I was gone in the sense of, I really lost track of where I was, which life it was, what I was supposed to be doing. It was, it was so evocative is the only word, evocative of just everything that the spiritual path could mean and does mean. And, and this man talked about, he was called Boxwalla Baba because he had this big metal box in his kutir. And when winter came there, you know, 15 feet of snow falls there and just buries everything. And nobody stays in their couturiers during the winter. They all go down to... Uh, the temple itself closes. They take the flame and the, everything down to the, a lower level, to 7,000 feet, and they run everything there. And then when spring comes, they all come back. But he stays there. And he stays. He goes inside the box, and he, he puts his body into a state of breathlessness and suspended animation. And he says he goes and spends the winter with Babaji in the Himalayas. And he says he goes in the box so that his body won't be eaten by the animals. I mean, he just explains all of this just like so casually. So I was very impressed by the whole situation. I couldn't, when Swami asked me later, I told him I couldn't, I couldn't parse apart what I was receiving from him and what I just was experiencing because it was just so fabulous. And just looking at how he lived and everything. Um, and then when Swami asked me what I thought, I said, well, Swamiji, he talked so casually about just putting his body into breathlessness and going off to be with Babaji. Swami says, well, when it's natural to you, it's natural to you. <laughs> just like that. He says, at a certain point, it's just what you do. And in fact, that's actually true. You know, some of us, the life we live to other people just seems beyond the beyond. Even being a vegetarian is just incomprehensible. You don't drink, you don't take drugs, you don't eat meat. You know, what do you poor people do? How do you make it through your life? It's like, well, it's not a problem. It's just perfectly natural. So at a certain stage, all of these things are perfectly natural, which is a very important thing to have into your mind because regardless of whether or not we actually can slip into breathlessness, it's very important for us to just have an extremely easy attitude about the fact, of course, this is my reality. If I'm not quite manifesting it yet, like Swami said to, like Master said to Swamiji when he talked about wishing that instead of having a beard and looking like people thought Christ should look, he actually could become like Christ was. Oh, that will come, Master said. Just like that. Just so easy. So you can't really go breathless now, but you will. It, it's, a, it's thrilling, really, to think like that, and it helps bring us closer to it. Or at least it doesn't set up additional obstacles to our being able to do it. I mean, it's, it's, we have enough to overcome. There's no point in laying on layers and layers of confusion on top of what we already have to work with. Does that make sense? But understanding it, what's really happening here is not that we're just holding the breath out, but that up and down flow which causes the breath 
actually stops. And what I was going to say a few minutes ago is about Kriya is, you know, when, we, when we're doing Kriya, the first thing we're doing is we're just pulling ourselves back. We're using, we're using the breath itself to reverse the process because the breath is forced upon us um, by that up and down flow. We, we trace it back by the same method. We, we consciously direct the up and down flow of energy and by consciously directing that which is caused from a deeper level, then we begin to sort of get, we begin to back it up. It's no longer compelled. It's now chosen. And it's chosen to flow with all of the subtleties that go with Kriya. We, we choose it. And we exert our will in it. And we are, um, the, way I, the way I think about it, we're using our imagination to put us in tune with something which is not imaginary. We're, we're, we're getting in tune with a reality, but we have to use a certain creative imagination because we haven't yet experienced it. But we're going into something that will take us into it. It's not, it's not an external thing that we're just playing with. It's not a, now you're walking through a green field and a unicorn comes, you know, and the unicorn is covered with flowers. You know, that's just... And that can be relaxing, but it can never give back to you. Whereas what we're doing when we're doing Kriya, there's an actual power that, it, that will give back to us. Um, that is really the difference between inner and external reality. Many years ago, when we still lived in apartment 108, many of you were just part of the saga because everything I do I talk about and everything I do becomes a spiritual lesson. We recarpeted that apartment and it was a huge thing to find the right color carpet and all of this and it was shipped from Atlanta and I mean you know we were just never Asha and David never do anything by halfway measures so we were totally involved in getting a carpet and after this gigantic saga of the carpet we finally get it laid and it's just I'm alone in the apartment there's nothing in it but the carpet you know the pleasure of something new lasts they say actually it lasts 20 minutes David Gamel quotes that as an actual statistics. New things give you real happiness for 20 minutes. I don't know. Maybe I don't want to cast that, credit him for that, but I think it's from him that I've heard it. I don't think the carpet lasted longer than that. I mean, and, and even that long. It was just there it was. And what I realized was that it was inert, that I could love it to pieces and it could never love me back because it had no consciousness. It was just a thing. And by enormous contrast, <laughs> when we're doing Kriya and we're entering into that inner world, you see, that's the source of everything. And, and that's where we have to really understand when we meditate, when we do Kriya, when we meditate by any form at all, that it is a relationship with a conscious reality, with a living, loving reality. I mean, that word relationship Otherwise, you're just spinning in your own mind. And, and that's the, an enormous advantage of a spiritual path based on the guru-disciple relationship because you always know that this is a relationship or at least a, a devotional, God-centered spiritual practice. I've, I've read, I've heard people talk almost proudly of non-deistic, that's the phrase I I heard, non-deistic spiritual practices. I think to myself, how dry. 
I mean, maybe it, it pleases people, but my first thought was, who's loving you back? You know, you're just out there all by yourself trying to suppress your um, inclinations to run away and do something else, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, people follow it, and I don't want to fall into the trap of religion here. I need to stay on the spiritual path. But that's what, that's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about being swept up so that there is no um, duality and therefore there is no exhalation because that's the end of it. It's so fabulous if you've ever been with anybody who's left their body when they've left their body. That relationship of the breath becomes so vivid because in those last moments, that's all that's left. You know, even that was Swamiji too. It, and when he was passing in those 15 minutes or so between his first uh, moment of uh, distress when a, a sort of wave of energy like a, just went through his whole body and his body contracted and everybody realized that something very, you know, very dramatic was happening and he, his breath became irregular at that point and they moved him from where he'd been sitting in one room to the bedroom, which was a very short distance away in that house laid him out on the bed, and then those who were trying to keep him there, breathe, Swamiji, breathe. And Miriam described it, that he opened his eyes, that for their sake, he made one last effort, and he took a very large breath. Um, but then he let it out, and he never, never took another one in. But it's over when that happens. I was with my father, and he, he was elderly, and he, he just sort of... I think he fell and he went into bed and he just didn't have the strength to get out of bed. And we all knew it was the end and there was no... My mother was already gone. There was no effort or desire to keep him alive. It's, <clears throat> I try to tell people death is not a medical emergency. <laughs> you know, it's not a 911 event. It's death. It's, it's okay. And so the place, the place where he was living, they called us and my brother and sister and I were able to go and spent about, maybe it was 48 hours, maybe a little less, basically sitting by his bed. He never spoke. He, he, was, he was unconscious, I guess. He wasn't like in a coma, but he was unconscious. But, you know, it just the, um, the fascinating thing that happens when people get close to the end, and I've been around enough times to see that this is really what happens. At first, the effort is to breathe in, and you see the person on their deathbed and they're going, <gasps> like that. <gasps> and then at a certain point, the effort becomes to breathe out. And I've been with, I don't know how many, five or six people. And, you know, now I really know as soon as that shifts, the end is very, very close. When my father did that, my sister had left briefly. You must get over here immediately. I was at a, with a family group and, they were all at different parts of the house. You must come here immediately because you could tell that now the effort is to leave, not to stay. And then there's just, you know, they, they take a little breath in and then try to get it all out. And then finally there'll be a point where it all goes. My father scared the bejesus out of me, though, really. He let out his last breath and it was quite some time, at least 30 seconds, maybe a minute before he breathed again. And I thought, that's pretty much it. I think he's gone. And we were sort of relaxing. And it actually, he 
felt very, very joyful. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, he took one last final desperate gasp. Really? Really? It just it really, really scared me. I didn't know what was going to happen, but then that was, then he let it out, and that was the end. But that is also, the vrittis are all calmed at that point, because you're gone. But it's, it's, I remember this Swami, um, that Swami up in Rishikesh, who has the Kriya Yoga Temple. Yeah, the vrittis have left. So the, no, they're not calm, they've gone with you. Um, I can't remember his name right now, but he's, he's that Swami who has the Kriya Yoga Temple up there. He's a, he's a disciple through Sri Yukteswar. And he came to Ananda and he gave a satsang. And, the, and he gave a satsang. And it's, it's very hard to give satsangs to Ananda. Swami Satchidananda, when he came once, and Swami Kriyananda was away and we hosted him, I thought his compliment was perfect. He sat in front of us after having spent a whole day at Ananda. He said, I don't know what to say. I cannot think of a single thing Swami Kriyananda has failed to teach you. And I thought that was so sweet and such a sweet way to put it. He went on to give us a very lovely satsang, but it was an appropriate thing to do because he was a guest in someone else's ashram. Well, this Swami was going to speak to us, and I wondered what he, what he could say. But he, he, his entire, entire satsang was about the one word, breath. And he, he just kept reminding us how absolutely everything comes back to breath. And, and he emphasized that if you just take care of the breath, you don't have to think about anything else in life. And really, it was very subtle. And I've never forgotten it because it's really true. It's another way of saying just do Kriya, just do Hong Sa even. If you just breathe, because that is um, the unifying constant. And, and the breath is prana, the breath is pr- and the breath is pranayama. And, and if you're always in your breath, you're always in the now, and you're always right where you need to be. And it's when you move away from it that you have allowed yourself to become distracted from your center. He said it much more interestingly. But isn't that fascinating? But that's also what Patanjali is telling us here, a fact worth knowing. So any comments or thoughts? Uh, just a second, uh, Jim. You have to speak into this microphone because. No, go ahead. No, because uh, this is recorded and it's not recorded unless you speak into. I get it. Cool. Uh-huh. Um, when you were first describing the breath scenario, mm-hmm. um, the depiction of it as a, a duality that becomes a sing- singularity essentially, mm-hmm. and then you were describing this uh, enlightened being sitting in a small space Mm -hmm. in a mountain Mm year-round. The idea that a person needs to find a way to breathe uh, gently and slowly over a long period of time to probably reach that state that you're describing, which is also very similar to the, let's say, the periodicity of the the death breath, as you also described. They're very similar, it sounds like, in terms of the pace. The, the yogi who was, assuming, in fact, he, would, he did exactly what he said, he would have to go breathless. There would be no breath at all. His energy would have to be, the breath would have to stop. But that's why St. Paul wrote, by the grace of Jesus Christ, I die daily. 
And for those who have ears to hear, what he was saying is he could stop the breath. He could go into a state of superconsciousness. He could go so interior into his consciousness that for all for, for the way the world de- defined life, he was dead. So it's very, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Adam? It, it was just a small thing, because um, you mentioned... Um, about how, and I've heard this before, about how a yogi will, in after becoming a Jivan Mukta, in order to work out past life karma, will take on multiple bodies. And the can. thought has always arisen. Not will, can. But can. Sorry, can. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've, I've heard it in different places. I don't know if places. everyone does or not, but it can. Right. Uh-huh. Well, the thought came to me, why would they do, I mean, if, if the understanding at the level of self, complete self-realization is that time is an illusion. Why would that matter? Why would working it out faster be a goal? <laughs> let, me just, let me just see if I could. Let's see. Swamiji says that a jivan, at any time, Master said at any time, a jivan mukta could dissolve his karma and become completely free. He is in a state of God realization, but sometimes he allows the karma to run because it gives him an excuse to come back and help people. But whenever he chooses to, he can become free. I'm not sure that the Jivan Mukta makes two bodies or the highly advanced yogi makes two bodies. Not that I can really make distinctions there, but if we're trying to parse it apart, perhaps that's the key. I've never, I've, I've read all that and I can, I can follow it, especially as Swamiji writes it in the Bhagavad Gita commentaries. I could never follow it anywhere else that he wrote it. But when he wrote it in the Bhagavad Gita commentaries, I could follow it. And uh, my answer is sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof. And when, I, when that is my actual issue, I'll understand it better. So I don't know. I think it's, it's, we're just trying to comprehend realities from a level of consciousness that can't comprehend them. Because, yeah, you do get into conundrums like that. What difference would it make? They have their reasons. I mean, there was a Swami in India whose name was, I believe it was Mork Ananda. And the word Mork apparently means silly in Sanskrit. And uh, he was visiting this Mork Ananda. I don't know how advanced a soul he was, but Swamiji spoke of him. And, and uh, Swami's host, who was a, a, a friend of many saints and sadhus, remarked to him, that's no name for a sadhu. She says, he says, you don't know me the way I know myself. <laughs> So it's like there's just this eccentricity. There's all these uh, complications of individuality that just play themselves out. And there's a marvelous eccentricity. Every, <clears throat> every atom in creation is dowered with individuality, which just says that there's just no end to the possibilities and the, the reasoning behind it. Because they're an individual? Yeah, who knows? Who can fathom? (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, any other questions or thoughts before we trundle on? Um, We're almost, it's a little early for our break, but since we're shifting from one sutra to the next, why don't we just take a little break now and then we'll go on to the next one. Anything else before we go on to the next sutra? This is unheard of to do more than one. Okay, I one thirty-five. Otherwise, I always love otherwise. Then you have to go back and say otherwise in relation to what? 
Okay. And this riches can also be neutralized by calming and retaining the breath out, which, what did he tell us before that, just to keep track here? By cultivating attitudes of friendliness, we can calm the vrittis. They can also be neutralized by calming and retaining outward the exhalation of the breath. Otherwise, (laughs) concentration on subtle sense perceptions can bring about steadiness of mind. He has all these different ways of talking about how we're supposed to do. The vrittis can be neutralized. The mind can be made steady. You know, steadiness of mind is a really interesting, um, is an interesting reality. When I was talking about how my father, my father's sudden, unexpected uh, inhalation just scared me so much. It's a, it's not something you can practice all the time, but it's a good thing to practice, which is to to not become agitated when sudden things happen. You know, but I'm always really pleased when something unexpected happens, and I don't allow myself to become too agitated. You know, when you're stricken with a sudden pain. I know I told you last time about the cup of tea pouring on my lap when I was riding the beginning of my 17-hour plane ride. And it was just one of those... The part about it I loved the most was just how how calmly I just watched it. I watched it tip. I realized it wasn't going to... There was no chance, and it was just going to pour on my lap. And I felt the increasing heat without any idea of how much it was going to hurt. And I just was so pleased that I just stayed there. You know, steadiness of mind is a, a quality, um, well, here he, he calls it this, by concentration on subtle sense perceptions. Then Swamiji explains that everything that's outward is manifests in an outward way because it exists inwardly. This is the same conversation we're having about the breath. We, we appear to breathe, but it's not really that we breathe. It's that the energy flows up and down in the spine. And Master has mentioned this. We have... We have the external sense perceptions and then we have the power of perceiving that is the internal reality. It only exists outwardly because it exists inwardly. I love the way Swami says when Master said um, that every every external reality has an internal counterpart and that God can be experienced as a thousand delicious tastes all crushed into one. And Swami says, oh, that's for me. (laughs) He always, he said that to Master about help me to overcome my desire for my liking for good food. And uh, the older Swamiji got, the more sort of unrepentant he was about that. And, you know, he would often describe himself I'm a picky eater, he would say. And that would just be, he said, and that's just the way it is. And he was always, from his whole life, because he was often very sickly. And, uh, it, but he was funny, too. I remember he told me once, he said in Romania, where, they, where he lived as a child, they had two big cherry trees in the backyard. One of them was yellow cherries and one was red cherries. And he said, and when those cherries would ripe for the season that they were ripe, on alternate days, he would climb one or the other of those trees. He said he would sit in the tree and eat cherries until he became sick. <laughs> and he would do it each, you know, each time until, you know, just like a little child would with no restraint. I don't know what sick actually meant, but he said he would just do it because he just loved them so much. You know, a man of enormous self-control just had that enthusiasm. I had the most interesting moment when I, the last time I watched Finding Happiness, which probably was when we showed it somewhere in India, 
I don't know which one. There's a scene at the beginning of the movie. I don't know if I said this to you, where Swami's... It's a home movie that uh, Ray Walters, his father, took. And Swami must be... He, he might be five or six. I think both his brothers were born, so maybe he was seven. And uh, he's riding his bicycle, and, and like, like children do, he rode right up into the camera. And it's, it, Swami's face was so joyful... But his face when he was older was, he always had exactly the same face. It was just the same face. And when he would sat there when he was 86, when he would sit there and look so blissful, it was still the same face. And somehow when that little child was running right up into the camera, I just felt that with Swami's energy in the cosmos. And oddly enough, I thought also of him just going into the cherry trees and just eating all the cherries he wanted to eat. This, um, that everything that we experience here is only even attractive to us because it reminds us of higher realities. It's, it's so hard to get our minds around that reversal. That's what the Bhagavad Gita says, what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. And we think of it in the ways that I was talking about, like we're vegetarians and people think that's awful, but for us it's very good. I I still can't get over this. Maybe I just shouldn't go to restaurants, but I do sometimes. You know, the people right next to us, you know, and she looked like a really nice girl. And she ordered this big meat sandwich, you know, with this huge piece of red meat in the middle. And again, it's just like, you're going to eat that? And then she just sort of did, just right there. And I, I can't, you know, it's, so, it's so hard to grasp. My last, um, the last time I ever ate meat was a hamburger. I had it at a little place up the road here somewhere, a place that's not there anymore. And I dreamt about the hamburger, the whole thing, the bun, the pickle, the tomato. And it was going through my veins all night long. You know, you know, just like those cartoons, this is big hamburger was just moving through me. It was, it, it, it put me off it for good. I mean, I was pretty close to the end anyway, but that was really the end. So it's sort of my picture when she's eating this thing about like it's just going to stay in her like that because that's how we see things. I was sitting in a restaurant once with Seva many, many years ago. We'd gone to Sacramento for some reason when we lived at the village and it was a really good Italian restaurant we liked, but it was very, very popular. We were sitting in there and I, I, and for some reason there was a very worldly vibe in there that night in that particular restaurant, even though we often went there and liked it. I said to Seva, if we actually looked as different as we really are inside ourselves, I said, we would look like Martians in this place, and they would all be screaming and calling the police. You know, we were sort of moving through their world in a natural way, but our, our just our whole conception of reality, the way we were living, we were living then just way out in the woods with nothing, and so free and so happy about it. And just to be in that very, all, everybody's all dressed up, talking about their stuff. You know, getting their 20 minutes of satisfaction out of all their new things. I don't mean to be rude. There may have been some very nice people in there, but our vibration was completely somewhere else. And so, even though we may not even know it, you know, the, the degree to which we find ourselves moving away, I would even use the word from animalistic appetites, you know, from just the, the grossest outward expression of, of the things that we want. You know, the sense of touch, which is associated so strongly with sexuality, with the desire to see and to 
have and to eat and you know to hear raucous things it's just you just you, there's such a huge spectrum isn't there from what people i was somewhere and there was just some um some heart really really strong rap music going on there was some oh i know what it was i i was on i was listening to npr and and i heard she was interviewing somebody i just turned it on she was interviewing somebody who'd made some kind of a movie and she just played a little of the soundtrack at which point i sh- i cut it off and the guy was doing a rap about some something really awful and just everything about it was horrible you know it was like unbearable for me to listen to and i realized that this was apparently a really popular movie that just really hundreds perhaps tens of thousands of people had flocked and and by choice paid money to sit and be tortured by those words and that sound but you know i couldn't bear it and it's just we just live differently we're we're much we're much farther in uh, to the to the internal realities of these things and and just not that much on the outside i mean all of us anybody who begins to wish to live from the inside no matter how uh, formal or informal we are about the way we relate to these things we we've just gone a very long distance it's it's something that's really it's been very gratifying for me in recent years i i don't feel it in any exaggerated sense uh because i'm fully conscious that there's a long ways to go from where i'm standing but there's also it's very gratifying to realize how far we have come you know just that that we take for granted now we define ourselves on a really pretty subtle level you know the eager way we all flock to the farm to dedicate the land you know we just were so excited and it was so touching to see everyone taking their babaji stones and rushing out and you know just we're like children i mean there's there are universes of people i mean uh, karmic groups all over this planet that just they just could never find that interesting and we were just having such a good time because we're very much at the source of these realities and um agni used to do a class about the om vibration and he had this beautiful way of putting it it was like a bell curve i think is what he drew he drew a bell curve and he was talking about music agni was the music director at ananda for many years um and he was talking about um that all music emanates from the om because everything emanates from the om and so all music all speech for that matter is a variation on the theme of om but it you get you get farther and farther and farther away from it and you know some music is very om reminding and some music just pulls you away far away from them why he would make the bell curve i can't recall at this point but but anyway that was how i remember him doing it but swamiji's music is so interesting somebody sent me a a video of john denver i i let went to ananda in 1971 and i got on the spiritual path in 1969 so there's a gigantic enormous section of popular culture that i just don't know at all i have no familiarity with and every so often 
my peers demonstrate to me that I just missed huge parts of this. So John Denver was something that happened after I went to Ananda. So first I was totally surprised by how odd-looking he has, a very odd face. Just, he looks a little bit like a hobbit. But, but he has a, a really beautiful voice. I mean, he could just really do lovely things with his voice. And, and the song was, um, it was a song about gardening, inch by inch, row by row, see how I can make my garden grow. It was a very sweet song, and he was singing it with Muppets. <laughs> so it was all together, you know, it was totally innocent in this very childlike face he has and the absurd haircut he wore at that time. You know, and he's singing this inch by inch, row by row, see how my garden will grow. And it's, it's a very, it was a very nice song. It was actually really pretty. I liked it. I actually listened to it a couple of times because I really liked hearing him sing it. But then I was trying to think what the difference in the vibration was between that song that he was singing and Swami's songs. And Swami's songs pulled you into the own. And that song was a, a very happy song, and it was a very pretty song, and actually it's, the words were really sweet, you know, about God and the sunshine and the, making the plants grow and everything. And it was just about as clean as it could be with the little Muppets there and everything, little singing irises and things like this, mushrooms dancing. It was innocent to the core, but it didn't, it didn't take you inward and upward. You just celebrated for a little while. And then when it was finished, your consciousness, you might be a little more cheerful. I mean, it definitely was cheerful. I mean, I listened to it a couple of times, partly because I liked his voice, also because I was very interested. I was just interested in the effect that it was having or not having. And so everything that we do can be experienced in a more or less inward way, but many things, of course, lead us inward I mean, some things are really the enemy of inward consciousness. That rap song that I heard was, you know, it, 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 um, I said something to Swamiji once about, uh, you know, how seemingly, yeah, this was actually pretty scary what he said. I said something how, about how seemingly nice people kind of listen to this really horrible music all the time. And, and his response was, if you could only see their consciousness. That was what he said. And I just like put that out of my mind because I thought of all the teenagers and people like that. But you know, there's a lot going on on this planet that is not really a good idea or helpful in the end. I mean, when, when Master said that there would be cataclysms and then he writes... There's a, that very interesting article from an old SRF magazine where he draws all these parallels by seemingly unrelated events. Bad weather on one side of the planet causes flu in another part of the planet, and war over here causes earthquakes over there. I mean, he just he circled the globe with negativity moving like this. When there was... Uh, Assisi is not that far from Yugoslavia and all of those countries, and when all that really horrible stuff was happening over there, they said in Assisi, sometimes this terrible wind would grow, blow from that direction. And, and they said they actually understood the concept of an evil wind. It just, it just had, there was an, an evil quality to that wind. It was very unsettling to everyone. and It would blow from the direction of where all that violence was happening. You know, many, uh, not many, unfortunately, but some members of, of all the warring ethnic groups took refuge at Ananda. 
You know, they had no quarrel with each other and they couldn't stay in their own country because they were at war with each other. Um, but when Master talks about and, and when you think about like earthquake or these terrible storms that have you know, started happening and the tornadoes and the hurricanes and things like that and you think about Master talking about you know, even bad, especially violent weather being caused by the dissonant vibrations, by dissonant thoughts. We're so ignorant of the consequences of our own actions, both individually and as a society. We just imagine. We are exactly like that stupid little bird in the, uh, in the Festival of Light. You know, God says, this is the way you're made, this is where your happiness will come from, and, and he says, no, I disagree. And he just goes out and creates chaos. And then even though repeatedly he lost everything he had, he just insisted on his reality until finally the tiny rebel surrendered, right? The rebel. And we're sort of like, because it's early Dwapara and whatever made us think this was a good time to incarnate, probably because Master and Swami were coming, we chose to. But, you know, there's just... if we imagine for a second that all that dissonance is not um, hanging around, that we can just shoot all that garbage into the atmosphere and not have it, you know, break things, it's just very, very naive. And so when, I don't know, Swamiji, I remember commenting, he commented once listening to the music, which as you well know is a pet peeve of mine. Um, he, he was listening, just, we were somewhere, and he was just hearing something. It was much more mild than what goes on now. Now, by the grace of God, he lost his hearing, so he didn't have to hear it at all. He probably never heard the worst of it. Um, and now he's in the infinite and he can choose. <laughs> but... Uh, he said, it just, he said, it just, listening to the music, you can see that this world is just trying, he put it that time, trying to have a big war. He said, it's just, it's just trying to, it's, it's building up its courage. And, and every so often that courage breaks out, like in Rwanda or places like that, where it's just, it just builds up and then it breaks out. And so that's what we're working with. The good news is, it has nothing to do with us. It has absolutely nothing to do with us. And that's, th- these are um, dualities that we have to really contemplate a lot. All we have to do is breathe. This has really nothing to do with us. It's like we're here for a completely different purpose. They're here to tear it to pieces, and they will tear it to pieces, and we're here to rise phoenix-like from the ashes. Swamiji, years ago, um, described this really interesting scenario. This was, I believe, in the 70s. He was talking about... That was when uh, all the hippies and so on were um, dropping out of college and going back to the land. Swami made the remark that there are many of them reincarnated American Indians who had their land taken away from them and are now born rich enough to buy it back. Those are his exact words. (laughs) And so they were going back and buying their land back all over the place because, you know, the white men took it away from them. So they were born as the white man and went back and got it in various places. 
Rumenid said, on the planet at this time, there are several um, reincarnational streams. You know, the soul is without culture, but these, the patterns can go on for a while because it takes more than one lifetime to figure it out. And right now, on the planet, in this transition, he said, you have Native Americans who, have a, who, have, who are, who were, an extremely refined and sophisticated um, spiritual culture, by the time the Europeans came, they were already, they were nearly extinguished anyway. They themselves had traditions about the apex of the, of the people, and they were a vastly diminished people by the time the Europeans came, and it was ready for them to be over because it was Kali Yuga ending. It was all going to end. But you have Native Americans with the, all the refinement and all that attunement to the environment, and the whole environmental movement is the Native Americans coming back to try to fix this again. Swamiji, and something else he was saying recently, just by the way, was talking about how inherently spiritual the continent of North America is. Um, the, the, and he said it, um, he said, you can feel it. He said, there were very high civilizations here. And he, he spoke of the Native Americans having been a very high civilization at one point, and their vibrations are still here. So those people are here, and they're here to bring that back, which they're doing as well as they can. Um, East Indians are here, people from India are here, to bring out the um, spirituality versus religion, to bring out self-realization. And he said, and those two groups are working under the radar. The people in charge are the debauched Romans, who he said are running the entertainment industry, uh, you know, those are the gladiators and the and the uh, just the, the hedonists, the people who said who crashed the civilization of Rome. He said the debauched Romans, and the um, it, uh, uh, the super techno Atlanteans, who sank that island because they became so out of tune, and so obsessed with technology and so out of tune with natural forces, that Mother Earth responded and and took Atlantis down. And he said, all four of them are coexisting. The Romans and the Atlanteans will destroy it again. And after they destroy it, the politicians, I believe, are the Romans also. I think there was only four groups. I always thought there was five, but I think there's just four. And the politicians and the entertainment industry are the Romans. And the Atlanteans are the whole scientific and that community. And then there's the East Indians and the Native Americans. And the Atlanteans and the Romans will bring it all down again for the same reasons, you know, with their weapons and their hedonism and their um, uh, sadism, cruelty, sadism. And after they destroy it, then the East, and East Indians and American Indians, the Romans and the Atlanteans don't know we're here. <laughs> That's what he said. They don't know we're here because we don't have any power yet. But after they destroy it, we'll come up. And then we'll begin to build what Master described as that next cycle of peace and plenty like this planet has never seen. It's still Dwapara Yuga. But uh, it, it, whenever I really think about that, I realize that it just what the Romans and the Atlanteans are doing just doesn't have anything to do with us. It's not our culture. It's not our world. It's not our responsibility. And who knows, perhaps we won't even be seriously touched by it because so much of the way this world operates could go away 
and it would have so little effect on us because we don't, we don't live there. We're not living on the outside of all of our life experience. We're living on the inside of it, even though we're going out to Rich's Very Rich ice cream and you know, just enjoying many different things. But by comparison, it's, it's such a light touch. And, and the more, even when we do participate in this world, we can stay in the breath and participate in it from that perspective, the more we'll just make our way through it and do our job. You know, we're on an assignment here. We're always on an assignment. Wherever, whenever we reincarnate, we're on an assignment. Think about those disciples of Jesus. I just read two biblical epics. One was the robe, and the other was the silver chalice. I think I'm done now, but I started them when I have a, a Kindle now. Kindle now, so I was I started when I was on the airplane. Um, but it was just both of them were really quite good. The robe especially, but it was just really marvelous to kind of go through that period of time and think about those souls that chose to go there with Jesus. They were really on assignment. You know, then the violence you know, touched all of them. But in, in both stories, they had this quality, which was the tradition, and Master says the truth. Because in both, in both situations, it was the beginning of the martyrdom that the Christians had to go through, And very intelligently in both books, um, they had the characters talk about the power of being willing to die for your faith and how Christianity would be established in the world because that example would be so powerful. And that's exactly what Swamiji said. I mean, the reason that had to happen was because it, it, it just unleashed so much power and it converted so many people and they... They repeatedly talked about how in the moment when the believers had to say, yes, I am a Christian, knowing that it meant they would die. They, and in both books, they described so beautifully how this, just this light would come into them and fear would just go away. Master actually says that if you, if you are martyred for your faith, he said, you, you don't suffer. If you have, if you hold, if you hold strong, it's a very interesting thing. He said, "You don't suffer." We imagine that you do, but you don't. I presumably because you're just not in your body. He also said, "If, if death is inevitable, the soul has the good sense to withdraw before it hits." <laughs> but he also said, "You're protected in that moment. It's not necessary." Amazing, isn't it? This world is so different than what we think isn't it? Okay, I think that about really does us in for tonight. Don't you all think so? We've martyred the Christians. We've collapsed the universe. We've destroyed civilizations. We've had earthquakes, uh, floods. I haven't had any famines yet, but we won't have famine. Now we have a farm. Okay. (laughs) Anything else? Marilyn has a comment. Where's the microphone? What are what are the inner senses? The inner senses. It's the it's the source point of vision. I mean, you can close your eyes, not be using your eyes at all, and you can see the spiritual eye. You can shut your ears and be not listening to any sound, and you hear the Om. 
Um, and Master says, you can taste delicious things without eating. You can smell beautiful fragrances without there being any external reality to it. So it's, it's the fact that whatever appeals to us in an outward way already exists in an inward way and can be accessed um, through inner consciousness. It's the power of seeing, the power of hearing. That's how Swami describes it. I couldn't describe it any better because I don't know. But we experience it. Yeah, the inner sounds. All right. That's it. Yeah, I'm leaving town. I'm leaving town on November 11th. 11 days on holiday and then 3 days in Dallas. But probably after that I won't resume because I come back on Monday before Thanksgiving. And so, I mean, and actually that probably means there's a hiatus of four months because November, December, and then I'm going to India for January and February. But we can decide. 